Welcome to the Technoid Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Gatoon. I think it's fair to say that this is going to be the biggest podcast that we've ever had. The co-founder and first CEO of Netflix, Mark Randolph, is here in studio with me. And we are going to talk about, obviously, his new book, That Will Never Work, which I think is probably a good read for all of you. Um, I'm definitely already into the book, so I'm telling you it's, it's worth your time. But if you want to know what it's about and you want to hear the journey of Netflix, which, by the way, I did not know, began in a conference room at a Best Western in California. Like, this story is incredible, and he goes into it a little bit on a bunch of directions. But the part that I think is most amazing is that it's not just about timing working out. For those of you listening who are really young, you really never experienced Blockbuster and what that was about. The idea of of shipping a cassette, a VHS, and his whole history, Mark's whole experience is why he knew better than to do this. He knew that he couldn't ship it in a cost-effective enough manner to make enough money from rental. So at the exact same time, this new product called the DVD is in test, and it's coming out. And here's the, the one thing, there's a million great takeaways, but this is the one that I just, I'll never forget. When he thought of the idea, he sits in a car, he's telling these crazy ideas to Reed Hastings, who's co-founder of this and, and, and fronting the cash. He says, this is my idea, and they kind of look at each other, maybe, maybe not, and then grabs a, a CD, Patsy Klein, if I remember correctly, and throws it in the mail, directed to Reed's house. Reed gets in the car the next day with him, and he's got the CD, and boom, he realizes right there, this is going to be... This is it. This is a thing. This can be done, or at least this can go to the next step. And I, I think it's a, a great point to understand that that in your mind, if you if you know that Netflix used to have DVDs by mail, and that's how they got started, and eventually to a website, and eventually streaming on apps and everything else, you realize how incredibly valuable and important it is to test every little thing before you make a decision. Because if he hadn't done that. If he would have just assumed that it wasn't possible, it was going to break, he didn't actually put it in the mail, he would never have known. And Netflix probably isn't here. Uh, absolutely, just seriously, one of the more incredible interviews, and I, I don't even have to tell you to listen. You're going to listen. There's no way you won't. Before we go to the interview with Mark, though, we're going to check in with the True Republic Technori poll and uh, see what's going on. That poll is brought to you by Active Campaign. Go beyond email marketing with True Automation by signing up at activecampaign.com slash technori. Get your first two months for free. Okay. Here's the question. I think it's an interesting one. Rank these technologies based on what excites you most of the future. Options, drones, blockchain, virtual reality. I'm a blockchain guy, but I'm going to tell you, I clicked on virtual reality. And the reason that I clicked on virtual reality, quite honestly, is you can do anything with it. Blockchain, we talk about the different applications, and I'm not even going to begin to be smart enough to tell you what Internet 2.0 and and all of the ways that it can change the way we move data and money and all this stuff. The reality is, virtual reality, pun intended, in my opinion, you can put every human being, every item, everything in the world and move it around and change what you see versus what they see. In one of our last podcasts, we had 3Kit, who does this a lot of ways. You experience it now uh, when you go on you know, Crate and Barrel and you're clicking on couches and they, they kind of recreate the images. Imagine a world where you can put yourself anywhere. I, I think it changes the way that we view the world, the way we consume things. And honestly, 
I think it's something that's going to be a huge part of Netflix's future. Obviously, I didn't ask Mark about that because I just read this now. But regardless, super, super cool question. If you want to answer more questions like that, go to True Public, uh, download the app. This is my interview, my conversation with the author of That Will Never Work, the co-founder and first CEO of Netflix, Mark Randolph. So, I mean, it's not every day that I get to talk to someone who's responsible for an obscene amount of time that I have consumed. <laughs> I mean, literally, like whether it was college, travel, uh, we have a, a newborn baby who is, I guess, 10 weeks now, roughly. And uh, Netflix is like the only way that, that my wife and I get by is just like streaming and binging everything we possibly can. Uh, so I, I just have to, I guess, thank you for all of the, the contributions to us and it would appear uh, almost a billion people who spend their time streaming away every day. Well, Scott, uh, thank you for, in your, some, your small way, helping put my kids through college. So I, well, I appreciate to that, that. To that end, though. As, assuming you're paying for your subscription. I was just going to say, to okay. that end, I have to apologize <laughs> as well, as I, I believe I'm the inventor of the family service where yeah. you, I think ours is still signing through MaryCatoon at Gmail, which is my mother. Okay. Uh, so, but, but we've been you a long-time customer. You don't want to confess that right now. Well, not to you, probably <laughs> okay, not, good. but I just did. Uh, no, but we've, we've had it in a million ways for a million years, so I feel like, I mean, I'm, I'm going back to like the, the the DVD days. Oh, like I was, I'm like an, yeah. an OG yeah. Netflix user, having them sent all over all over town. Um, and it was like, I, I actually can say, I remember, you know, Blockbuster was still a thing. Obviously, that was, you know, probably a big target on your on your war, war room uh, wall. Um, but I remember going in and as a young kid being like, this just seems stupid. Like, it d- doesn't make sense to me that I have to, like, drive two miles to find a movie that's probably three years old. Well, you were certainly one of the visionaries then because when we came up with the idea of video rental by mail, yeah, like sh- shipping DVDs in an envelope, everyone thought it was crazy because they thought the opposite. They said, why am I going to wait 48 hours for a movie to arrive in the mail when I can just get in the car and go to Blockbuster, so which is uh, three blocks away? I'll tell you what you already know. Uh, I, and I've always been kind of a steward of, obviously, media. But a steward of media and tech and entrepreneurship, just that sort of thing, even as a kid. And I, I'll tell you, I remember the exact moment when I, when I remembered thinking Netflix is going to be the future. And this is like Blockbuster still crushing everything. My uncles live in rural Iowa and rural Wisconsin and rural Minneapolis. And we all love the same kind of movies. It's like Stallone, Seagal, Arnold, like that's our thing. And if you go to Waukon, Iowa, northeast Iowa, corner of you know, Iowa, Minnesota, and Wisconsin, Good luck when you go into their family video store and f- there's no blockbuster. Good luck finding the videos you wanted. And so we're all at the, at the Thanksgiving table talking about what we were watching. And they're like, how do I see that? And they couldn't. And so I remember sending uh, my uncle Rod, I remember sending him the first like it was like a paper referral. You had to like lick the envelope to send the DVD back and then rip off the corner and give it to him. And he signed up for Netflix and then all the brothers signed up for it. And now we're all watching DVDs across the country where normally they could never see the movies. And when I saw that, it was like, you're going to access 60% of the population that currently does not go to block. They can't. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we can bring families together. It really, I mean, honestly, at the end of the day, I I had a conversation earlier this week with, I don't know, obviously you're an investor, so you're probably up on this, uh, the viral email app Superhuman. Don't know it. So it's a refer-in, super. they've raised a ton of money. Andreessen Horowitz is a big lead on their investing uh, group, I think both times. Um, and that was a situation where when when I talked to him, I'm like, how how do you build this company? What is what is the, you know, yes, it's an email, it's a, kind of a software play, but what's the, the meaning behind it? And he said, think about 
every day that that sucks as an entrepreneur and it usually ends with you behind the computer filling out emails while your wife and kid are living their life yeah and if i can increase the time you spend with your family by decreasing the time you spend in front of the keyboard i'll make you feel delighted and if i can make you feel delighted you'll love my business and you'll use it and it was like so like we're not talking about business we're talking about making a person feel good so to your point i mean netflix yes you can talk about all of the different things you had to conquer to be successful, which we'll obviously get into. But in the end of the day, the mission is how do we bring people together and how does our, our product increase the, the, the love, the joy, the fun that they have? Yeah, well, fundamentally, a company has to have a number of these things. Yeah, for, so, oh, And certainly in the, in the movie industry, business like that, you, at the bottom, you really have to be giving people something they want and that they love. And so being able to match people up with, with movies they really like was the core principle from the very beginning. And it was one of the things you pointed out, which was missing from Blockbuster. I mean, we were also incredibly lucky that the established player, everyone hated, Yeah, which is certainly a nice situation to be in. I mean, your case is a good one, people going in and not finding what they want, but... You know, you can add on the surly clerks and the... Carvana the, is making a lot of money right now chasing after that same. No one likes a used car salesman. Absolutely No right. one wants to go through the process. I mean, one of the things I say the easiest way to start a business is to start looking for pain. Yeah. And teach, you know, train yourself to see the world as an imperfect place. And man, there are ideas everywhere. Well, not to be overly cheeky about this, but the reality of for Blockbuster and why Netflix is reign supreme now is that for Blockbuster, that will never work. This is the name <laughs> of a book I know. Exactly. And, and it's true. They, they didn't... They took for granted that they were the only shop in town and that they were not serving any sort of greater purpose. It wasn't about it. Maybe it was at some point, I'm sure, but it wasn't at the point where you guys tipping point, if you will. They were not serving the purpose of make, wanting to make people have fun and joy. I mean, I think that's why like even family video and a couple other you know, smaller groups kind of were able to sit in the way because they actually did make it kind of fun. Well, yeah, Bat Blockbuster actually had a thing they called managed dissatisfaction that literally is how they referred to it which is they knew they were going to piss people off yeah that they knew they were going to have be out of stock on new releases they knew people weren't going to like the late fees could they just make it just tolerable enough so that people would still use the service well and that's just a non-sustainable way to uh, to run especially when you've got people coming after you um like we were coming after them uh speaking of non-sustainable and that being kind of the the root of the the fall Toys R Us, Circuit City, both talking to people from there, they had a, a term which is ubiquitous across all sort of retail, but the word shrinkage. They they factored into their business that kids were going to break toys and they still anticipated making money on that. Or stealing toys. Or stealing toys, <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, like, yeah, so Circuit City and all, they, they, right. they lived thinking, we're not going to try to solve this. Why would we waste our time solving? It's a small percentage of margin. The reality is that is a huge, at least in my mind, a huge red flag as to the way you view your customer. I mean, assuming that they're going to steal from you. Well, assuming it and also <laughs> counting it into your, your finances. Like, oh, we know that kids are going to break stuff and have to come back in, and they're going to break stuff here. We're still going to charge them for it. We're yeah. not going to be, like, you know, nice about it. And Circuit City just assuming that their customers are, are going to be thieves. And so they, they set up a security point at the front of the store like you're walking into a prison. Yeah, exactly right. Like, oh, that's that's what feels wonderful for me to shop. Yeah, that's actually a principle that I used long – not that principle. I used the opposite of that yeah. principle a long time ago. When I kind of realized that companies spend so much time trying to prevent the few random acts of bad behavior and ending up treating everyone else like a criminal. criminal. Yeah. 
And it's so much more effective to go the opposite way and say we accept the fact that a small percentage are going to steal from us or break things or whatever the bad behavior is. But it's so much easier to open things up and make it easy to do business with you and accept the fact that some people take advantage of you than do the opposite. I'm finishing the book uh, Trillion Dollar Coach with Bill from Bill Campbell. I'm sure you're familiar with Bill Campbell. Sure. And this is like a constant theme throughout the book. It's like you can you can choose to run your business any way you want. Right. And you may still be successful, even if you do it, you know, what we might consider the wrong way. But if your root instinct is to try to give people, rise them up, the likelihood of success and the battles that you're not going to have internally will greatly amplify the success you have versus if I'm just going to trudge and pull people through this, like you're going to go through the hell that is my life. Like, it's not exactly what you want in leadership. No, it certainly isn't. So I want to kind of, <laughs> If we can go kind of through your your life story and and end well, I want to end on on the book because I I think we can obviously start and talk about all the things that that the book represents and what people are going to gain from it and and how you came to these conclusions, but I don't think it does service to it without understanding what you've done and been through in your life to make you realize with whole heart that this is not how things should be done or this is how things should be done. Yeah. You know, now there's this, uh, obviously, this thing called being an entrepreneur. I mean, you can take classes in it. You, yeah. Even places you can major. There are degrees in it. You can major it in it. Yeah, it's like, and, and uh, you know, when I started, which was almost 40 years ago, there, that was not a thing. They called you impresario. I think, <laughs> I think that was the term. It was an impresario. Even that term I never certainly heard. <laughs> but the point is that um, there wasn't this career called uh, being an entrepreneur, and there certainly wasn't the glorification that there is now yep. of movies about it and all those things. Meaning the thing that drew me into it was something inside myself that I uh, I just saw problems that needed to be solved, and then for some crazy reason found that to be fascinating and interesting. And so I was always drawn to situations where I could start something or run something, even before it was a company, whether it was clubs, whether it was selling things, whether it was kind of just being a scrappy a candy arbitrage so person in fifth grade. I, I ask every founder and like some of the best ones, and I'm not putting pressure on you, but oh, no, some of the some of the best ones. So like guaranteed rates founder Victor Sardelli was on the show. And I love asking people like yourself, what was your first job, first way you ever made a buck? Because I think it tells a lot as to like the stick not just the stick to itiveness, but like the the thoughtfulness. Well, no, I, I alluded to it briefly. My first job was I was uh, involved in candy arbitrage. And it was probably in fifth grade or something like that when you kind of realize that the candy bar that you can buy for 10 cents at the grocery store can be sold the next day at school for a dollar. Yes. And so you're almost like a drug dealer. Yeah, you're kind oh, of, 100%. You're kind of lurking out in the halls and you're kind of surreptitiously passing people Snickers bars for a dollar. Um, but I made a lot of pocket money doing that. I, I don't, I did, I'm very similar. I was, I probably shouldn't admit this because I'm sure my mom will listen to this episode. Um, I made all of my get around money in high school when I was a junior and senior because one of my good friends was 25 and looked very much like me and my ability to buy beer and other things. <laughs> not only did it help attract people to me as far as like being popular to go to parties or whatever, right. but I realized when I went to a party as a high school kid that they were charging like $5 a can and sometimes, you know, $25 to come into somebody's house. And I was like, this guy can go to the store and buy it for me for like nothing. Yeah, exactly. And I, I mean, literally, I would walk home with pockets <laughs> full of cash. My mom was like, what in the hell is going on? I didn't have the heart to tell her. That yeah. was what happened. But it was a similar pattern, which is in both these cases, yeah. where all of a sudden you're seeing this 
opportunity. And rather than being one of the 100 people who just sees the opportunity, or even worse, doesn't even see it, yeah. you see it and go, I'm just going to step into that void and do something about it. Yep. And I think every company that I've been involved with was something like that. Even a weird one, um, one of my first jobs was working in a music publishing company. You know, it was doing sheet music. Yep. You know, like John Denver for tuba or uh, Beatles for auto harp. Weird stuff. Yeah. Um, and I was kind well, of... Well, in the 70s, I don't know if they look at that as weird. I mean, John Denver was the man. Yeah. Well, yeah. the weird part was that, well, yeah, it's, it's true. But he's strange sheet music books. Yeah. But they, for some reason, they were only selling to distribution. And I was going, we should try and sell these to people. And so we began putting, at my direction, these little lines in the back of the songbooks that said, for a list of more great Cherry Lane songbooks, send a self-addressed stamped envelope. And so my job was taking these self-addressed stamped envelopes and making a copy of the list of more great songbooks and mailing it out to people. And then they would send orders back in. And I'd go to the warehouse and pick it. And for some reason, I'm going, this is the coolest thing ever. And then began playing with different ways to like, you know, multiple pages in color and then catalogs and then direct mailing. But this opportunity to kind of take this wide open category and do what I wanted and experiment and learn. You are Kazaa and Lyrics.com before Lyrics.com. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's so. So you take that before the Internet. I no, mean, well, yeah. I, I didn't want to say it. I assumed yeah. I made I mean, they had just invented the car. I think was, <laughs> it was uh, what we were doing then. So. I I don't think that lines up, but it might have been something. It, yeah. it probably was something like that. Um, so you you're you already have kind of identified that you have this this niche. And I, I think there's two things. I, I point this out after I asked that question almost every time. And your answer was very much on par. To, to be clear, Victor's was he was painting people's addresses on the curb and then knocking on their door and selling it back to them. Uh-huh. That's like, cool. even if they didn't want the thing, it's a little late now. Right. Um, but what I notice about them is there's sort of two things. And you mentioned the first one, which is that you identify that there's an opportunity there. And the second thing is you use the term arbitrage, but there's an actual like you actually actually make a deal. You have to be able to go in there and sell to people the value. You have to learn Absolutely. how to be like right now you can go to Jewel. You could go get the candy bars the same as me. But you weren't hungry then. Right. You're hungry now. So how much is the candy bar worth? Absolutely and right. And that's a skill set that I don't – you can learn over time, I think, to nurture it and learn how to be better and more effective as a salesperson or a builder of mousetraps. But to actually have the innate sense to be like, oh, there's the value. That's the buyer. That's the customer. That's unique. Yeah, it's looking, it's looking, for, it's looking for problems really is, or looking for opportunities, which is kind of just the inverse of what a problem is. Yeah. So now you, you've got this. You're moving in. It's very clear that entre- you know, not the term that they use them, but entrepreneurial ventures is going to be sort of your way. Or maybe you're just bumping along from project to project, and it just keeps seems to be big companies. Is that like what's oh, the- Oh, no. These are not big companies at all. I mean, these are small. I mean, after, after the music publishing one, we then, even at the music publishing company, we started a magazine. You know, and there's people there. It's a music company, so yeah. one person's dead on to be the editor. One person's perfect to be the photography and the music. And they're going, "Who's going to do circulation?" And dead silence. And they all like look at me. Yeah. So then you go, "Okay, I'm going to learn magazine circulation." And then you leave that company and you go start a magazine. Yep. And then you s- sell that magazine. Then you start a mail order company. Then you sell the mail order company, and then you end up in California. So <laughs> it is stumbling. Usually, yeah. And, well, in this case, we sold the. Uh, I was recruited to turn around a mail order company in Carmel, California. Okay. So that got me out there. And then we sold that company, and I'm, there I am, just a stone's throw from Silicon Valley. And that's what the transition was to being um, high tech, I guess. Yeah. So I want to I want to learn more about that that thing because I think that's the kind of the linchpin here on like what people are going to learn is that there is. I talk about this a lot with the 
the small it's not I'm not calling them small businesses, but there's sort of a there's a difference between like the rocket ship that is startup land or the expectation, I guess, uh, and small businesses that should make revenue and they're revenue producing and they're sales driven. Not that these other ones aren't, but there's a, a the valuation is grossly different. Um, and so as you pivot from uh, if I'm mistaken here, Carmel, that would be Clint Eastwood's that's w- the line one. of world. No eating ice cream on the sidewalk. There you go. So you're pivoting from from Clint Eastwood land to high tech in Silicon Valley, what is the first like hit you in the face thing where like, this is different or, or was it not to you? It was not different. At the time, again, this is, you know, just after the car came out. But at the time, <laughs> there, there was a software industry. Yeah. I mean, there was Lotus 123. And I was working for a company, recruited to work for a company called Borland, which at the time was like on par with Microsoft and Lotus. It had been left in the dust you yeah. know, long ago. But it was very, very similar to the same thing that happened at the music publishing company. The software was sold only through mail through software stores, and they brought me in to say, "Can we figure out a way to sell software to individuals?" Because my whole career up to that point had been mostly direct marketing and direct yeah. mail and catalogs and circulation. This whole Netflix thing is already starting to come together. For yeah, me. you're picking up these clues, right? Yeah. Personalization, subscription. I mean, I you, mean you you replaced a sheet with a product with a software. With a DVD. There's a lot of threads here which are similar. Yeah. And so I worked at Borland for like probably the longest I've ever worked someplace other than Netflix, like seven years, something like that. And um, turned it from just being selling a few copies to eventually being like 40% of the company's revenue of just blanketing the earth with mail order pieces for software. Yeah. But it was an amazing experience. And that really is the transition point because when I left there, that's when I jumped much more into tech. Um and it's kind of a quick transition to the Netflix story. Yep. But I ended up working with starting a company with two friends um, doing a really geeky software product. And then something, that amazing thing happened is we got acquired by a much bigger software company. Um, and the lucky thing about that much bigger software company is besides the fact that the investors made some money and yeah. our stock options got worth something, is that the CEO of that company was Reed Hastings. That's a good man. And even better... Reed Hastings lived in the same town that I did. And so the two of us began carpooling and became friends. Then six months later, and I tell this whole story, of course, and yeah. that will never work. Um, six Which months, you should buy. Of course you should. And then six months later, that big company also got acquired. And same great outcome. Investors made money and the stock options was worth something. But the real turning point was that I got fired. And not in that awful... Uh, you know, walk a shame way, yeah. but in the golden handcuffs way. Um, and in this case, they came to me and said, um, so Mark, we need you to stick around for about six months. Yep. Uh, but eventually we don't need you. Um, we're going to pay you. We're going to invest your stock. And I'm kind of parceling this all out. And I go, so you want me to stick around for, s- I'm, I'm going to lose my job, Yeah. but I got to stick around for six months and I get to keep getting paid and my options vest and yeah. Get to keep my office. Sounds terrible. <laughs> and I don't have to do anything. Yeah. And they go, yeah, you could say that. It's a Silicon Valley dream job. Yeah, I said, sign me up. I'm going to use that time to start. They an, now call an, this startup hacking, by the way. This is a term. <laughs> I don't know if you've heard this term. Where you work for someone else while you're starting your other company. Well, that's that, been going on forever. That's <laughs> yeah. just called, uh, well, I won't go into that. But um, the startup hacking is there's these individuals, and it's starting to pick up here, but it's not as you know mature here as it is out west and, and a little bit in the east. It's basically knowing that you're on a company that's going to be part of a roll-up and being able to roll-up, roll-up, roll-up and have like multiple acquisitions under your belt in a very short period of time. Right, right. And amass enough wealth that 
for the average Joe, you could stop. Right. But instead, you take that money and you turn around and you elevate yourself. You push up. it all into black Correct. five times yep. in a row. Yeah. More or less, yeah. But it's house yeah. money because you yeah. you you were part of a multi and they and, and people are starting to see the the acquisition turn wheel. Right. So they kind of know when to jump on, when to jump off. You saw it with uh, with um, I think it's exact. Exact target, exact whatever it is that got rolled up into HubSpot, which didn't get rolled up and rolled up again into Salesforce and Salesforce just bought tablet. <laughs> so there's people, and now the guy, the CMO of G2 Crowd here is uh, Ryan Benici. He was one of those. Oh my gosh. And it's a thing. It's a I, real thing. I, you started I, it. I used to call that just uh, falling uphill. That's what it's supposed to be called, but we have to have a cool hashtag now yeah. that, that didn't happen. <laughs> And for me, it wasn't a strategy. I wasn't going, yeah. oh, yeah, I'm going to try and keep getting acquired uphill. It just kind of happened that way. I'm not way. sure how I feel about the fact that these people have a strategy. I mean, like, isn't it, no, as a CEO, like, I'm really kind of like... A little manipulative, maybe. It's very, yeah. Like but this yeah. was not. This was the... No, this was very pure and, and honest. Pure of heart. But the thing is, um, so I was going to lose my job. I said, I'm going to start another company. Yep. I, have, I have this perfect opportunity to get paid for six months and have a place to sit in the office and work on it. And Reed Hastings... Um, was also getting fired or made redundant or whatever yeah. they call it. Um, but And he wasn't going to start another company. He was going to go off and uh, become an educational philanthropist, which he actually has done, but wanted to keep his finger in the whole startup thing. Yep. So we agreed that he'd be my angel investor. We'd come up with an idea together, uh, and then I'd start it and run it. He'd fund it, and off we'd go. And then began this, gosh, four or five month process of looking for the idea yeah so experiment looking for the pain like i was we were talking about before looking for these opportunities uh trying to figure out what the right um right ingredients were yeah um and obviously this was a different time this was the internet was just starting to take off access to information here is not going to be easy there was this brand new company ama Amazon, Amazon, I think it's called. It's a forest place. They, they were just, yeah, they were just selling books. Yep. And they were a bookstore online. And we were going, that is really cool. Um, and we began saying, I was thinking to myself, I recognized immediately, I go, this internet thing, this is my whole, dire my whole direct marketing career, but it's on steroids. Yeah. I mean, this is unbelievable, the ability to be personal and direct. You can do and have millions where you did hundreds. One-to-one -one relationship and infinitely scalable. And so I go, I'm going to sell something on the internet. I don't know what yet, but I'm going to sell something on the internet. And a lo most of the ideas were crazy ones. Like, in, in, you know, and that will never work. We, Reed and I talk about these drives where I was pitching him ideas. Like, uh, one of them was uh, personalized baseball bats. Okay. Like, I, I, my dad was a big machinist, and we learned about these new things, these computer-controlled milling machines. And I'm going, this is kind of cool. We could make an exact bat, one of a kind. Bad idea. It's a small, uh, smaller marketplace than, yeah. than what you had. The Here, TAM on, on DVDs is higher. Here's another, here's another one which we pitched. Uh, I pitched to Reed. I get in the, I'd work these things up and get in the car and go, okay, Reed, I got another one. Um, so he stopped ones, picking you up at some point. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> I think we're good here. No, I think the thing it was great. The two of us had this amazing back and forth yeah. where we were totally honest with each other and we'd beat each other up in the interest of figuring out whether even the craziest idea might have a germ in it. Another one was personalized shampoo where you say, okay, this is great. You cut a lock of your hair, you mail it into us. We formulate a custom shampoo just for you. And another bad idea. Yeah. Well, part of it was good though, because that ended up being a multi-billion-dollar business, and, sh and all the other, the shampoo and the. the I mean, yeah. your well, razor blades is next. Time. Yeah. Boy, I wish I'd done that one too. So timing is a big piece of these things. It certainly is. But one of the ideas we pitched was great idea. 
uh, let's see, big category. Books, video, how about video rental? $8 billion category. And then I went to my little office with my internet and, and researched it and shut it down because this is back in 1997. Uh, video came on VHS cassettes. Yep. I mean, you probably that's a tough one to say. I probably, was Betamax. You probably I watched a hundred times Lion King on a. Oh my god! A, yeah. a, I was a, watching Predator with Arnold, but yeah, same difference. It's all the same. <laughs> it's all relative. Uh, so it didn't work. You know, I did all the research and go too expensive. And again, going back, I had mail order experience. Yeah. I knew all about shipping things. I knew all about Federal Express rates and all that stuff. And I go, I can't make this work. Not for what people are willing to pay for a video rental. Yep. So I discarded that one and went on to something new that was crazy. And then this amazing thing happened. There was this new technology just in test market in like seven cities called the DVD. And Reed's talking about the DVD, and we're going, this is small, and it's thin, and it's light. And we're going, maybe we should dust off the video idea. And we're going, it's no, no way. You can't mail a disc. This is 14 cents to ship. I'm in. That, that was the idea. We go, geez, a first-class stamp. You could move... You can go way, move way more data with a stamp than you can over the internet. So we go, well, the first, and any entrepreneur does this, the first thing you want to do is begin to try and validate your assumptions. So we turn the car around mid-commute, go back down to the town we live in, Santa Cruz, um, and go to a used record store and bought a little Patsy Cline music CD okay. used. Yep. And then went two doors down to a stationary stop and bought a little envelope, the kind you put a gift card, greeting card in. And put the CD in the envelope and then addressed it to Reed's house in Santa Cruz and then went to the Santa Cruz post office and popped it in the slot uh, and went to work. And then the very next day when Reed came by to pick me up, he didn't even say anything. He just kind of holds up the envelope. And there was an unbroken music CD that had gotten to his house in less than a day. And that's when we, that was the moment we said, Got it. wow, this actually changes everything. Yeah. And then, boom, and then it was off and running, still with huge uncertainty. We, um, you know, we, how many DVD players were there? Uh, how many DVDs were they going to be? What did they cost? And this was a time when you couldn't just go into Amazon Cloud and dial up an instance. If you wanted to have a website, you had to write it. Yeah. You had, if you wanted a It was service, a high barrier for sure. Unbelievable. I mean, it still kind of is, but not, not like that. Obviously. I mean, we realized that to test this thing, we were actually going to have to build a lot of infrastructure to see if it worked or not. And so we did that thing, which every entrepreneur has to do. We've got to take that step and make that decision to go ahead, but base it on incomplete or inconclusive or you know, even worse, contradictory yeah. data. And But we did. So Reed wrote a check for $1.9 million. Um, I went It's like 10 now, but yeah. <laughs> and uh, I deposited that, rented a rented a conference room at a Best Western as our first office, uh, hired a dozen people, and uh, a little band of uh, people with no experience in the video industry went about trying to build a disruptive uh, co company. I would say you, you accomplished the mission. Uh, I think it's worth noting here as kind of an aside in this is the – it's not. It's not even wherewithal. It's. It's sort of like a, it's a vision, but it's not just vision. There's like obviously you mentioned. There's timing. There's being. I, I never use the word luck because I think it's. It's about preparedness, being prepared to to hit an opportunity when it does come in front of you. But in this case, and it, this is a thing for any entrepreneur listening to the show, the chasing after I want to start a company thing, 
works only if you're a person who only is you, you get off on solving problems and like you're able to like you're not connected to i have to solve my problem or i have to solve this one thing that i like i just need to figure out there's an opportunity and i think that there's things that are going to line up maybe based on a limited amount of information that could make this possible yeah, we could talk about this for hours but um it's absolutely that you can't start off with this idea yep. you have to fall in love not with the idea you got to fall in love with the problem because you have no idea what the solution is going to be and whatever you think the solution is you are wrong yeah everyone who pitches you an idea i can guarantee i wish i could just bet on it's going to fail because they all fail and including the idea we had for netflix yep. failed yep. it was a bad idea but it was a starting point and the problem we were solving, which is how do you do video rental by mail, or even in a broader sense, how do you deliver video to people? That was the problem, and that problem has consumed us for 20-plus years. Yeah. No, I, but it I, starts off in way, crazy directions, and you just got to take that first step and see what you see. I think on the investor hat that you also wear now, it's, a, it's an interesting thing that I think founders should know this, but I think also investors listening to this should be thinking this. One of the questions that I ask almost every founder that comes in calling for money is I throw random things at them. So random circumstances in the future, things that I think are going to happen, things that I think, you know, AI in email. The, right now it doesn't really work well because it only serves a small part. But in, the, in time, if it actually becomes, you, you know, usable, uh, I think it's a big deal. So what I would say to a founder trying to start a company is like, okay, so two years from now when this becomes mainstream, where do you go with it? And if they have no answer for that, whether it's because they don't know the answer, which is fine, but if they haven't thought of it, I'm already out. <laughs> because they're, cause they're not, cause you're solving a problem for today and not for tomorrow, and your business exists tomorrow. Right. I make my money back tomorrow, not today. Yeah. So like, I, I want to know that you know. Also, but I'll challenge you on that, is that too many people think too far in the future. I would agree with that as well. I mean, they are building this castle in their mind before they've even laid the foundation. Some of them are public companies, by the way. <laughs> yeah. We won't name names, but... It, and so I'm saying, listen, I, I'm... I'd love to hear your vision for the future, but if it's if you're spending too much time thinking about, oh, I'm going to make so much money selling T-shirts, I'm going. You got to solve phase one. You know, don't be thinking too far in advance. Get get permission to take the second step. I agree. I think one of the really good quotes. I'm forgetting who it was who said it here, but it was uh, they live. They live in the micro, but they see in the macro. Yeah, and that is what makes a great entrepreneur is that they're able to start with something which, if they get it right, gives them permission to play in a bigger space. And if they get that right, play in an even bigger space as opposed to going down a dead end. Yep. So now you've got, I mean, you're kind of, you know, I guess we'll call it off to the races with, with Netflix, but yeah. th this is going to be a long, crazy road for you. Let's start talking about the the learning moments throughout this that start shaping the book. Because obviously, the beginning part of your career has a huge impact on this how you view yourself, how you view the world. But for the for the 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 people who are reading this, going, what am I going to take away? What are the the key things over the next maybe call it fifteen years of your career that really shape your like solidifying? That's the thing. Did it happen before Netflix, or you mean that I've learned all, since all together? Oh my gosh, there's so many there's so many things in this. Um, so the, the, f the first one probably, and the biggest one, is the predisposition to action, that you have to do something. And again, we talked about it briefly a second ago, but you can't build the idea in your mind. You've got to take it and figure out a way to quickly get it out in the world. And a perfect example of that is the, the fact that Reed and I didn't say, wow, 
will this work, will this not work, and spend weeks going back and forth on video rental by mail, we said, screw it. We turned the car around and immediately went and mailed the, DV, mailed, mailed the CD to ourselves. Yeah. And that would have told us instantly if it didn't work. Yeah. But that happened all over the time. Another big one is focus. Um, a classic example uh, in the book that we struggled with is when we first launched, um, there was great news and terrible news. And the great news was we came out of the gates swinging. Uh, we had a hundred thousand dollar first month. Wow! And the bad news is, all of it was selling DVDs. Yep. None I of it was that, yeah. renting DVDs, and that was horrible news because we knew that Amazon was going to do that eventually. Yep. It was a um, commodity business. Wasn't the business you were trying to get into? No, it was it was death. Not now, but off in the future. Yep. And that's the worst scenario. And so we're saying, wow, and even worse, doing both of these at the same time is really hard. So we got to pick one and focus on it, and then that begged the question of which one to focus on. So do you focus on the sales, which is paying all the bills, but is going to eventually go out of business, or do you focus on rental, which is potentially amazing, but no indication in the first month that it was going to work? Do you think if and you so were if you were doing that's that a now, courage thing? I, I agree. I think, I think the question I have there is is interesting. Is if you did that now, if you started Netflix today and you went the traditional VC route, would you have had the backing, and maybe it wouldn't have mattered to you and read, but would you have had the backing of your investors to pursue non-revenue and pursue what you think, I mean, obviously you explain your reason, but like money talks. Is it possible that because Reed cut the check to get going that you guys were literally all in and you didn't have to answer that question? It was like, we believe this is the right decision, so we're going with it. So f first of all, it's a different world now. And- you should never be in the situation of having to ask a VC for money to demonstrate whether your uh, concept is good. Yeah. I, I now expect, as an investor myself, I expect you to demonstrate to me on your own dime that the idea you have is actually a totally good one. Totally agree. And if you're coming and saying, the only way I can test this is with $2 million, well, then get the hell out. Yep. Um, I want you, when, I, when you tell me your idea, and then I say, well, how, where does your confidence come from that this anyone's going to buy this or use this? I expect you to come back and say, because I've spent the last nine months doing this real hack-together test where I've demonstrated conclusively that my premise is right. It's not scalable. It's not repeatable. But I know the core is correct because I have tried it. And you can do that for $25,000. Yeah. And you can raise $25,000. Well, you can come on your show and- yeah. uh, Crowdfund. Come do, call me. Get, pop that up in half an hour. I know people. I don't have the twenty five to give you, but I know a guy. <laughs> but that's it. It's, it's, it's a, it's, it was called a friends and family round yeah. for a reason, is that you go to your friends and your family and say, have faith in me. Um, I'm going to figure this out. But not $2 million, yeah. not $20 million. The people who get that kind of money have already demonstrated the principal premise. And now the risk is, can they scale it? Can they make it repeatable? So the, the the question I would ask as a follow-on here is, what are some of the key things that you think people might be struggling with or might be missing as they're starting their companies that would lend your book to help them? I think one of the things is to realize that Netflix did not spring fully formed into 150 million subscriber, make your own TVs, make your own movies, have your own meme company. Yeah. you. We started like Every company does. Like all the companies that- The uh, Best Western, that like listen, conference room. Yeah, the Best Western conference room. And then when finally we could afford an office, it was a piece of crap. Yeah. I mean, we had this dirty, smelly, green carpet. We all brought our furniture from home. So we were sitting on lawn chairs. And my, my wife came into the office one day and was going, wait a minute, are those our dining room chairs? Yeah. Around the conference table. Um, 
we had no idea how we were going to make this work. Um, we crashed our servers in the first 15 minutes of our launch day. What you can take away from this is that this is a journey, and it's an exciting journey and a fun journey, and the journey is the fun part of it. And, and that will never work. I'm really walking us through how a company like Netflix starts. And these decisions are not ones that we went and raised $100 million. These are ones that I went and asked my mom for $25,000. These yep. are ones where we went to friends of ours and pitched them on this. Did they um, get free DVDs for life? <laughs> no, although my mom did do pretty well. She actually ended up buying a nice apartment in New York City with the, uh, the returns on it. So. Which is ultimately the dream. I mean, I think for me, like, that's always been a, you know, for me, like, the first company I started, I including what ends up being Technori, um, I tried to ask people for money. I couldn't ask my parents. I could, but they're not, like, wealthy. But I, I just felt they were already helping me in a million other ways. And I pitched the people who should know that's a good idea. And they were like, this is a bad effing idea. That will never work. I bet yeah. They said, oh, right? well, I got plenty of those. But I got a lot of people <laughs> saying after the fact, like five years later, like I was wrong. So I'll take credit for that. Uh, I took out credit cards, yep. which was a terrible decision that I'm paying for now. <laughs> but I wouldn't be here if that was. So like, I, I decided then to know that this is my future is going to have that problem. But that's a tomorrow Scott problem. Yeah, there's a, there's a value to going and asking for money and doing the difficult thing. And yeah. I mean, going to your parents, it's. That is not, I mean, that is a really hard thing to do because it's real. Yeah. Because you go, wow, I am on the hook for this. And I don't mean on the hook for the money. You're on the hook emotionally. For sure. So, um, which I guess does sell your commitment. I mean, obviously, I'm, you better oh, be fully in. Absolutely. There's a sense of responsibility to the people who, not backed you, who believed in you. Yeah. That y you owe it to them to make this thing work. I, I talk about in, in uh, That Will Never Work that when I was probably in my early 20s or late teens, I had this summer job um, where I was leading backcountry trips for, what's the word, adjudicated youth, I guess yep. is the term they use now. Um, and as the training for it, they would wanted to put us in this equally unfamiliar world that we would be putting these kids so what they would do is they'd take us to a big city in my case it was hartford and they'd drop you off take away your wallet take away your watch take away your id and open the car door and out you go and then we'll pick you up in three days <laughs> that's that's like legit yeah it's that's seriously real. legit i'm not sure they could do that now no no way but um it was amazing and the thing that a lot of great things that were fascinating for me came out of that but about 24 hours in, I'm starting to get a little hungry. Um, and at first, I was stealing food, swooping into people's plates like in a food court. Yeah. Which, that's, that's one way of really kind of making yourself feel good about yourself. And then I go, I'm going to yeah. cut out the middleman. I need some money. I'm just going to panhandle. How hard could that be? And holy crap, that is the hardest thing right? you can imagine. Is It's the naked ask. It is walking up to a stranger and saying, give me money for nothing. Um, and I did, tried for about three hours. And I kept shying away. I couldn't do it. I'd screw it up. And finally, I began getting some success. And the success came when I made myself vulnerable and spoke honestly. You know, can you spare some money I am really hungry and it was a lesson because first of all when you've had a panhandle for change 
on the streets of Hartford because you're hungry. Asking someone for $25,000 is nothing. Yeah. But it also made you realize why people invest. And it's not this naked capitalism where I'm giving you $25,000 and, damn it, you better give me back two hundred and fifty. Yep. They want to believe. They want to be part of something. For sure. And if you can make someone feel part of what you're doing because of your commitment emotionally, that's the most effective fundraising technique I know of. I could not agree more. I also think that there's something to be said to tie this into your whole story is that the moment of the panhandling, I I really do think that for a lot of people, if they haven't felt actual, I mean, even though this is short, you know, I don't want to compare this to actually being homeless because it was not, but it's like a, a small period of time where you have to feel true desperation when it's vulnerability bad, it is and but when bad things happen in the future you're like oh i got this. it can't trust me i've been starving on a street of hartford i'll be fine yeah. like that sets a new bar that i think a lot of people who've never really been pained like that when they do find their first adversity they they tend to whine complain and look for an easy out as opposed to just like bearing down and be like or, we've been here or give up well yeah even worse and this characteristic of a great entrepreneur is you get knocked down and you Damn it, you get back up again. And you can get knocked down hard, enough that the wind's knocked out of you, and you're not get, it takes you a while. You're not supposed to get up, but you do. But you still do, and it's not because uh, that's what I'm supposed to do. It's because you're driven yep. uh, to do it. Um, and, and that's certainly, I mean, Netflix, it took us two and a half years. Uh, this struggle, in that will never work, about the, all the things we tried to get this thing to work, to figure out some model that made economic sense that people would actually do. And we tried hundreds of hundreds of things, um, testing things, uh, crashing the site, broken links, you know, bad art. The, our tests were so sloppy at the end because we were just trying to throw something out there that somebody would actually do. I'd love to know, the, so like speaking of these iterations, that, you know, obviously, so you've doubled down on rental. You know that's where this has to go. And then there's the period where I, I legit, I remember sitting there trying to find a way to plug my computer into a monitor so I could watch it from the website because I was watching most of the stuff on the website at this point. Right. And I'm going to guess based on the, the past story that you've told that you saw where there was going to be cloud. You saw that there was going to be a streaming thing that was going to happen. It wasn't going to be going to Netflix.com, that there was a, a bigger thing. What was that decision path like between you and the rest of the company figuring out like, listen, we're going to have to spend a lot of money without a lot of return as we make our bet. Well, starting that process when I was pitching at the very beginning, everybody, and I mean everybody, was going, that's ridiculous, that'll never work. Yep. And the reason it'll never work is because in just a matter of days, everyone's going to be downloading all their movies sure. or streaming all their movies. What are you talking about? DVDs, that is so... 15 years later. Yeah, 15 years later. We knew, we go, the, the first, first of all, yes, you are right but you're wrong about the time frame, or I think you're wrong about yeah. the time frame. So what we had to do was build a business which worked in the present, but was building some equity which would also work in the future. Yep. So, for example, if we had positioned the company that Netflix is um, the world's fastest shipper of plastic. Sure. I mean, that would be great, perhaps, in the short term, and it was a DVD delivery business. But then, of course, when streaming comes along, you're toast. But if you had positioned at the very beginning, we're all about downloading movies, you're even more toast because yep. there's no content, there's no bandwidth, et cetera. So the trick is how do you find some agnostic positioning? And for us it was Netflix is about finding entertainment you love. 
because that is delivery agnostic. I mean, it works in DVD, works in streaming. It'll work when people can beam movies into their fillings or whatever yeah. the next generation is. And we in, that was the, one of the smartest things we did. And then doubled down on it, built deep personalization into the website, built an algorithm for doing taste prediction. Um, all these things designed to cement that as the Netflix premise. I, I feel like this is, I'm, I'm seeing this in layers. where, And I don't mean like stages in life and time. I mean literally like, so I, I've got to build, a, you know, based on core value, I've got to build a now revenue stream, sustainable enough to get me to the next step. Then on top of that, simultaneously, I need to, to know and do research and understand the market for the, the next five years. And I need to build that infrastructure above it. But the core value there is not going to be about money now. The core value is going to be stick to it or stickiness. And I'm going to build another layer on top of that that's scalability, that's growth, that, that enables us to be positioned either financially or technologically in a position to capitalize on the future I see. And this is the part that I think a lot of founders don't quite get, that the research it never stops. No, it doesn't. And in fact, it's it's pretty much an intuitive thing, too. Oh, for sure. I mean, recognizing that I've got to make my... I'm not going to raise my next round unless I have something deliverable. Yeah. Um, and that's usually got to be some form of revenue, or it could be some technical proof point or some uh, Salesforce scaling. But they're yeah. all different companies. But you, each each level has to be achieved. But that level had better set you up genuinely for what the next level is. Well, and you're and the people who have this intuitive sense about where does each piece lead that that's the way a big business gets built. So I, I see this, and I, I'm thinking to myself, there's a you know we all have to go through that gut check moment, and it's going to happen you know probably every day, a couple times a day maybe for you guys. Um, but there's that time where somebody looks at you and goes, well, they're going to stream tomorrow, and you're able to do what they didn't think to do, maybe because no one asked them the question, but they never thought to go. Okay, for that to happen, what needs to happen first? Cloud storage, new computers, computers and, and Wi-Fi and Internet. Oh, there's 50 things exactly. that were so far away that it, it couldn't possibly happen in five years or 10 years. Right. And you know that that's where you can have a gut check and go, gee, how did you know to push forward? I knew to push forward because I, I did my research and I understood that I could be wrong, but a lot of things that are against my, intuit, my intuitive nature would have to all be wrong. Sure, but you're... You, you, there's a ratio of forward and backwards. Yep. I shouldn't use forward and backwards. There's a ratio between present and future. Yes. I mean, I, it, it took us, well, streaming didn't come until 12, 13 years in. Yeah. I mean, if I had every round had to pitch people and say, oh, invest even more this time because I promise it's coming in eight years. Ridiculous. Yeah. What people want to see is I've got a real business now. And that every piece of equity I'm building in this business now is equity which will be multiplied even more when it comes. Yep. And, and that was the beauty, is that everyone agreed streaming is coming. And they were looking at who's going to win. And it could have been Comcast. It could have been HBO. It, all of them had this infrastructure that they were building that was getting them ready for that coming streaming war. And what Netflix was building was a customer base and an expertise in matching people with content. And at the time, who would knows who's going to win? But we weren't just focused on making money uh, mailing DVDs back and forth. We were making money on selling DVDs back and forth, yes, with an eye toward how does this set us up for the future. So I want to ask on the, on the way out of this, if you, as whether it's the investor, as an entrepreneur, as an author, 
what is the one thing you wish you could tell every entrepreneur before they ever send you a deck? What's the one lesson that they will learn how to do in the book? They can get a lot more background on it, but the one thing takeaway that you'd like them to know before they come pitch you uh, or the, ask for mentorship. The first question I'm going to ask is, how do you know? I don't want imagine, if you will. I yeah. want someone to say, here is how I know which means before you ask for a cent, I expect you to prove it yourself. And these days, different than when I was a lad, um, the technical stack is so good. I mean, you can get onto the web and get everything you need to test out your premise for nothing. Yep. Um, or I want to see how clever you were at taking what appeared to be a very complicated, expensive, difficult thing to test, and you were so clever, you figured out a really great way to figure this out without actually building it. That's what I'm looking for. Your idea, it sucks. I know it. I know no company that was successful with the idea they started with. What I'm looking for is how resourceful you are, how clever you are about how to validate your ideas, how much, how scrappy are you? Your idea is gonna change, and what I'm looking for is your ability to make that change and stick to it. What does it tell you about that person when they give you the right answer? Oh, I'm backing the person. I don't care. I don't care about the category. I don't care about the idea. I'm absolutely backing the person, and not just. Ba and quite frankly, the the converse of how easy it is now to test things means there's a gazillion companies coming out, and quite frankly, it's impossible to know which ones are going to do well and not do well. I know I'm going to be wrong most times, and so I no longer invest based on the assumption that I can pick them, yeah. that I can somehow have a higher batting average than somebody. I can't. So now I just go, screw it. I'm going to back the people that I like, that I really want to be part of the ride, that I think so deserve a swing. And that's the premise that, uh, that's the people who believed in me when I started Netflix were doing that. And I want to pay that forward. This has been a complete honor to have you in on the show. Uh, the book is now available. Do you know where people can get this book? Well, hopefully you can. It's called That Will Never Work, The Birth of Netflix and the Amazing Life of an Idea. And you should be able to get it at your local bookseller. But, of course, it's also on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and, as they say, pretty much anywhere you buy books. Someday it might be a documentary streaming on Netflix. <laughs> One never knows. One never knows. One never I've got to figure out who's going to play me. That's all. Uh, <laughs> taking it from other founders, be very careful and be make sure you have the signature approval on picking that character because it can go south quickly. <laughs> Thanks for the tip. Of course. Mark, thank you. This is a, an absolute pleasure. It's been a pleasure to be as well, Scott. Thank of you. Of course. To invest in startups, download past episodes, or apply to pitch on the Startup Showcase, check out technori.com. And to stay connected by following us on social at technori or follow me at Katoon. Boom, that's a wrap.